bless the Lord. So we are in the, um, on the final installment of our um, mini-series, just revisiting the vision and reasserting, reaffirming ourselves in the basics of the gospel. And um, we've spent some time looking at what the gospel is. And it's been important that we do that. Um, I think of these verses, and I come back to these verses in 2 Peter chapter 1. And in these verses, there is a challenge to us. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are, what? Increasing, they keep you from being, I think we need to say, they keep you from being or in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, so we can be a people who have the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth of Jesus has been revealed to us. We've submitted to that truth, come into relationship with him, and yet can still be ineffective and unfruitful. It's one thing to say we're a Christian. It's another thing to suggest whether or not we're a healthy Christian. If these qualities are yours... And are increasing. So there's a question as to whether or not these qualities may be ours. They may be so severely lacking that it would be, hmm, are these qualities actually evident in my life? But that's not even enough. It says that they are to be increasing. And so there's this sense of growing in gospel maturity. Growing in gospel maturity. In such a way that we are not ineffective, but effective. Not unfruitful, but fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, I think it's important that we do have these seasons where we focus on this challenge to us to be fruitful and be effective. Because being a people who appreciate greatly the grace of God and the fact that salvation is by grace. It's given as a gracious gift to us. It's not something that we earned or merited. It's not something that we deserved. It's not something that we achieved or attained to by impressing God, but it was given to us. We can then think that, okay, well then there's no expectation upon us at all. Because salvation is by grace. We're saved by grace. So, say long silver. And yet, no, there is an expectation of progress in the Christian walk, in the Christian life. There is an expectation of effectiveness. That's, that's probably a word that we wouldn't normally associate with the Christian walk. Because it suggests that that's something that can actually be measured. And it suggests that there's going to be some kind of evaluation. But there's an expectation we'll be effective and that we will be fruitful. 
in the knowledge of the Lord. And so one of the things that's going to help us to that end is for us to consider what the gospel is not. What the gospel is not. And so if you turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 6 to 12, um, considering its meaning, and then looking at the implications, looking at some implications for us in our time as we consider what the gospel is not. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you have preserved your word for us. Even though your word was written to the original recipients, it was written also for us. And so as we look at your word, we recognize that we're looking at our lives in a mirror right here. We're able to look at our lives in the mirror of your word and make those necessary adjustments in order that your image might be properly seen in reflection. Because you have made us in your image. And through Christ Jesus, we have been regenerated, renewed and restored to be those who represent your image. Being the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And so this is our prayer, Lord. That as we look into your word, that you would fill our hearts and our minds with you. And that, Lord, we would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody know what that is? It's an egg. Not one of the ones you'll get at um, Bali Loaves. <laughs> Definitely not. If you do, let me know. <laughs> it's a Fabergé egg. Huh? Who is that? Jason there. Tim. How you doing, bro? You all right? Fabergé egg. Or at least that's what the owner thought 
Fabergé eggs can value in the tens of millions. I didn't say thousands. I didn't say hundreds. Millions. Some of the most expensive Fabergé eggs exceed a hundred million pounds in value. The owner of this egg thought that this was an original Fabergé. The owner was a, a man called Michel Comedian. And he bought the egg worth 10 million pounds. Yeah? And he took it to an exhi exhibition, and en route to the exhibition, it was damaged. And so he sued, or he attempted to sue the transportation company for millions. I mean, this is a Fabergé egg, damaged in transport. Irreplaceable. It, it, I, I need to get my money. Tried to sue them for millions. Look, the judge awarded him a thousand pounds. A thousand pounds. As it's not a real Fabergé. And Michelle Comedian, he absolutely was resolute and, and unmovable in his commitment and his conviction that this is a Fabergé egg. And I ought to be compensated in the millions for the damage that has been caused to this egg. And the judge said to the Armenian-born Mr. Comedian that his own subjective belief about the egg's provenance, whether it was proven to be real, was simply irrelevant, irrelevant to the issue of whether it was really a genuine Fabergé. So just because he really believed it, that didn't make it true. Just because, and you know, you'd look at the egg and feel as though, I mean, it, it looks like it. And you know, it had all of the characteristics. It may have even carried the same kind of weight and had hallmarks and so on. But it wasn't real. It wasn't genuine. And when subjected to scrutiny against the real thing, it was proven to be found wanting. It wasn't real. It was bookie. We look at a situation like this and we recognize that it doesn't matter how much we believe something, it doesn't make it right. And this is true of the gospel. It's important that it is not just a merely subjective idea in our own hearts and minds. It's not just based on our own feelings, but that actually it is according to that which God has revealed of himself. So as we look at these verses, we see that this is what Paul is addressing with the Galatians. People are deserting Christ and turning to a different gospel. Now think about when this was written. I mean, if this could be written by the Apostle Paul, who was... A contemporary, he lived in the, at the same time as Jesus. He was of Jesus' generation. 
he may well have even seen Jesus himself as a Pharisee in his life and time. He may have. It's not stated, but he may have. He was one who persecuted the followers of Jesus, the, the, the first converts to Christianity. He stood there at the martyr, martyring of Stephen when Stephen was stoned to death for his faith in the Lord. He stood there. And so the same person of that era is now writing to a people of that era who are already turning from Christ to a different gospel. So here we see that there's a different gospel. And he's like, but actually there is no other gospel. But those who trouble you want to distort the gospel. And so in this, we recognize that actually there can be different alternatives or distortions of the true gospel. Distortions of the true gospel. Was in Ask's um, upper school on Friday um, with uh, Sister Sarah, who works there, and um, Lorena, and we were doing a CU, and just as a little kind of starter exercise, we had um, some of the young people participate in, a, in an exercise we call fake news. And basically, they had to give three facts about themselves, and one of them had to be fake, and those of us listening had to try and guess which of the facts were fake. And so when I was explaining it to the first person who was going to come up, uh, a young, a young um, guy called Samuel, um, I, I kind of explained it to him, this is what you're going to need to do, and he, was, he wasn't quite sure. And then I said to him, look, this is what you need to do. Say three things about yourself. I want you to think of three things that are true, and then one of them, I want you to just twist it slightly. Just, just, just make it slightly untrue to the point that it's untrue. Um, I can't remember what his was. Uh, he, I think he said something like, uh, I've never had an injury or something like that. Marina might be able to remember. And it wasn't quite true. Um, he had had an injury. Can you remember what it was, Sarah? No. Moments passed. But it was, it, was, it was something that sounded very plausible. It sounded very close to the truth. But it only needed a, a little distortion for it to be untrue. And this is what the people were doing with the gospel. In the time of the Galatians, they were being um, tormented, if you like. They were being troubled by those known as the Judaizers. And so basically, these were people who were saying, look, this Jesus is all well and good, but you cannot have Jesus and forsake Moses. Actually, receive Jesus. Accept him into your heart and life. Submit yourself to him. And having done that, then keep the law of Moses because then you will be truly righteous. And so what they were trying to suggest was faith plus. Jesus plus. Saved by faith, but continually saved by works. Now, on the face of it, you could even think, you know, well, as a Christian, we're supposed to be, you know, walking uprightly and righteous. And so, actually, I, I believe in Jesus, but then why is it that I'm not to keep the law? Let, I, yeah, I ought to keep the law. 
very subtle distortion. Because what they were suggesting is, having put your faith in Jesus and committed to follow the law of Moses, if you don't continue to follow the law of Moses, you will no longer be saved by Jesus. You hear how dangerous that is? And so it fundamentally works out to be salvation by works. That we acknowledge Jesus, tip our hat to him as we come in the door, but then we beaver away and work away at ensuring that God doesn't reject us. That's not the gospel. Even hearing that, some of you are thinking, yo, I thought that that's what Christianity was about, actually. You know, you put your faith in Jesus and then you do your best to make it to heaven. It's not the gospel. Last week, we talked about the fact that gospel faith is in Christ alone. In him alone. And so we are saved by grace as a gift. Through faith in Christ alone. And at any point that we start to engage in works, thinking that that is what is going to sustain and maintain our relationship with God, that's what's going to prevent God from rejecting us, then we have deviated from the gospel. And it's no longer grace. It's no longer a gift. You give a gift to someone and say, it's yours. You know, it's an expression of my love to you. And then a month later, they're like, presenting you with money. Oh, you know, I really feel like I need to pay you back. At that point, you understand that they haven't caught the concept of it being a gift. No strings attached, no expectations. And so they were seeking to distort the gospel of Christ. Throwing the people into confusion. And trying to pervert the gospel of Christ, it says in NIV. And yet Paul makes it clear. There's one true gospel. Even if we or an angel, I I absolutely love this. I mean, hear what Paul is saying. If I'd done lost my mind and came back and told you some different story. You notice he said we, you know. He didn't say others. He said, even if we lost our senses, got deluded, got deceived. This is why we can't put people on the pedestal, you know, even the great apostle Paul. Because he recognizes limitations and frailty. I could come back and tell you some madness. For whatever reason. And we've all had that experience where people that we've looked up to have deviated from the truth and it's caused it's rocked us and it's caused us to think whoa what do I what do I now do with what the example that they set and the things that they taught you know it may even be people that really helped us on in the faith and discipled us in some way even if we or an angel even if they come and tell you something different you don't deviate from the truth This also challenges those who claim to come with angelic revelations. And if you think about the most cults, sects, and religions that have started even after Christ, post the gospel era, 
that have started with a revelation of some kind. I mean, let's talk about Islam. How did Islam start? With an angelic revelation, an angel came to Muhammad in the cave and started to give him news. Muhammad didn't even write it down himself because he wasn't literate. So then he conveyed it secondhand to someone else, which has become what is now Islam. But look at the source. It was an angel. Was the angel speaking that which was in accordance with the gospel of Christ? So then what are we to do with it? Okay, then. However you want to say it. <laughs> this is what we're being instructed here. You look at the various sects of Christianity, the little offshoots, distorted offshoots. You've got um, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, Celestial Church, even the Seventh-day Adventist Church who preach a message that is very similar to that that was being spoken against in Galatians. It's all well and good you have accepted Christ, but you have to keep the Sabbath in order to, to genuinely be saved, to be a Christian. And how did that start? Ellen G. White had a vision of, 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 of a chain with ten links. And one of the links was broken, and it represented the Sabbath that was not being kept. And so that became the thrust and the focus that actually we ought to be keeping the Sabbath because God told me in a vision, in a dream, and if you don't keep the Sabbath, you're not saved. What was the source? A revelation. Contrary to the gospel. And so you look into the origins of all of these um, different sects and cults and you see in the main, it's according to some revelation that an individual had. It wasn't even an open one that other people were able to testify to and say, you know what? That's true, you know, because I saw it myself of personal, private, subjective revelation. And we're supposed to give, give away, put aside Jesus who was openly crucified before a city and was raised from the dead and seen by over 500. No secret revelation going on here. We're supposed to put him aside for these other views and fake news. No, sir. And Paul is emphatic. He repeats himself. It's so important. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The word in Greek is anathema. I mean, it just sounds deep. Anathema. says, look, I'm not here to just man-please. I'm not in this to man-please. Like, I mean, who would I be trying to please? Men or God? Who would you really, who's more important? Who ought we to be, to whom are we accountable? But if I was still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. If I was trying to please man, I wouldn't even be a Christian. That's what he's saying. Remember, we read in Philippians, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Don Dada when it comes to Israelite living. That's what Paul said. Hebrew of Hebrews. I, was of the, I know what tribe I was from. I was from the tribe of Benjamin. <laughs> like, start flexing his, his Jewish chest. 
And yet he says, I count all of these things as feces. Our English translation sanitize it. Refuse, rubbish. Certain people like to take it too far and say, Paul swore right there. <clears throat> Listen, the point is the point. No standing among men has any reference or relevance to our standing before God. And then Paul says this, he says, look, for I would have you know, brothers, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. This isn't a human idea or invention. This isn't, this isn't merely an earthly philosophy. I didn't get it from anyone. Nobody schooled me in this. This isn't something that I just, is just learnt understanding or learnt behavior. This is received through a revelation of Jesus Christ. We understand that Paul met with Jesus on the road to Damascus. The risen Lord appeared to Paul himself in such a way that he was even physically blinded. There was physical evidence of this encounter. And the, the Lord spoke to him. And even those who were with Paul heard the voice of the Lord. The book that the book of Acts tells us, chapter 9. He met with Jesus. And Jesus personally intimated to him the truth of the gospel. And you know the blessing is? The truth that was intimated to Paul by Jesus was consistent with that with which was given to the other apostles. Because then we see, Paul said, I went up to the other apostles after a season of time. After, after a period of time, I went up to them to ensure that I hadn't run in vain. And so even Paul submitted himself to the counsel of the apostles and submitted himself to community. So many times people say, you know, I've got this revelation from God and this is what the Lord is saying. And they neglect the fact that First Peter tells us there's no private interpretation. The, 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 the prophecy of God is of no private interpretation. If it's true for you, then it's going to be true among everyone else. And Paul appreciated this. And he didn't think, well, you know, the Lord spoke to me and I know what the Lord said to me, so I don't care what no one else says because I just have to give an account to the Lord. I'm just going to... No, if the Lord has spoken to him, then he knows that it's going to be consistent with what he's spoken to the other people. Anybody's coming to you with a re revelation and they want to tell you something about what the Lord has said, you test it against the word of God. Amen. Test it against the word of God. It doesn't matter how wonderful it sounds. You test it against the word of God. And if you're unsure, you put it on the top shelf and just leave it there and let the Lord take it down when he's ready and, and, and decode that. So, we see the problem identified, a different slash distorted gospel. Why was it a problem? Because there's only one true gospel. That's the reason that it's a problem, because there's only one true gospel. Notice, different or distorted. Different, can be completely different. 
or it might be a deviation or a distortion of the truth. But there is only one truth. And so the solution is never accept another or deviate from the true gospel. Never. Why? Because the gospel is God's. It doesn't belong to anybody. Nobody has the right to change what God has authored. At the end of the book, Revelation, last chapter, last verses, let no one add to or take away from that which is written. If so, let him be cursed. There's a reason that Revelation is at the back of the book and that comes at the end. Because it's speaking not just of that which is in the, the Revelation, but it's also speaking of all that which is God's scripture. And, you know, it's, it's, it's sad because today there are so many, even in halls of, of academia, in, in, even in places of theological learning where they're supposed to be talking about the Bible, where people are deviating, changing, adding to and taking away from. And so I want us to just look at some implications of this now and consider some of the modern distortions and alternatives to the gospel. Now, when I say that, I'm talking about those things which are like or even including or alternative to the gospel, but suggest a different ground or goal. A different ground or goal. Now, there are some things, and people say, this is the basis upon which you are saved. And so let's say in Islam, they say you keep the five pillars, etc., etc. Recognize Muhammad as the prophet of God and declare peace be upon him and so on. And you, you sustain this throughout your life as a Muslim, Muslim being a submitted one. And that is the basis upon which you will be saved. Or the Jehovah's Witnesses might say, well, you have to believe in Jesus, but not as the not as God, but as a God. When you read their Bible, John, the, the um, what's it called? New New World Translation. Thank you. It's important that you know that sometimes you go looking on your apps. And you think, oh, yeah, New World Translation. Let me use this one. Just freshen up my reading. Due to your reading heresy. <laughs> New World Translation is, is a heretical um, version. They change key things. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In their version, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Was a God. It contradicts the rest of the verse. Just in and of itself, it doesn't make sense. But these are the things that they hold to. They also say you have to go and knock on doors and do works in order to be saved. So it's a different basis. Then there are those things which say the reason for the gospel, the purpose of the gospel is to make you happy. And variations on that kind of thing. That's not the reason or the purpose for the gospel. Now, just before I kind of break down um, some of these things, 
there were, there's a story of um, four blind men who had an experience that they were now trying to retell in court. And as they were in court, they were sharing their encounters and their encounters kind of had certain similarities, but they differed in certain ways. Some of you may have heard the story before. They, they, they had an experience where they encountered something that they're now trying to describe. And they're all very confident of what they experienced. The first person said, you know, what I experienced was, was long and rubbery and flexib flexible kind of. And it just felt very much like it was a, a hose that I was handling. The next person came along and said, hmm, what I experienced, your honor, was, was chunky, was chunky, and it was big, and it was rough, textured, and it was like, it was just like a tree trunk. The other person said, hmm, well, your honor, what I experienced was large and upright and it, it was rough and kind of coarse, but it was, it, it was just, it was huge. And I just put my hands on it and it, it was like a wall. This is all supposed to be the same experience, right? And then you had the last one. They said, hmm, well, as for me, your honor, I can't speak for the others. But what I experienced was, was long and sinewy and thin. And, and it was very rope-like. Were they all describing the same experience? You're not going to give it away. Don't give it away. Don't give it away. <laughs> were they all describing the same experience? It doesn't sound like they were describing the same experience. But what they were describing was an elephant. They were all describing different aspects of the same experience, of the same encounter. And so the trunk was like a hose and the legs were like tree trunks and the body was like a wall and the tail was like a rope. And this shows us how actually, even with the being well-intended and having a good intention, we can reduce the gospel to focus on one aspect of it and it not being true to the whole of it. Yeah? There's, there's a term they use for that. They call that reductionism. So the whole elephant is an elephant, not just the tail. To suggest that the characteristics of the tail are the ultimate and complete characteristics of an elephant is to reduce the magnitude and majesty of an elephant to its feeble tail. And likewise, often some of these distortions come about because people choose to focus on an aspect of the gospel and make it the whole thing. Therefore, we need to take a couple steps back and think about actually what's the big picture here and keep that in mind. So I've got 10 distortions. I'm going to focus more on a few than others. Again, you might want to just click these slides as they go up and capture them for, for further consideration. 
um, these are common distortions, deviations, much more subtle ones that are common even amongst Christians. So, moralism. There are those who think that the goal of the gospel and even the basis of the gospel is being a better person. Some would say, if you know, you, you just fix up yourself, get yourself in order, do better, be a better person, and that will please God. Or they think that the whole point of the gospel is to make you a better person. That's not the whole point of the gospel. That's not the goal of the gospel. It's not merely to make you a better person. A better person by whose definition? In whose eyes? In whose? It's to make you right with God. And I'll give you an example of why that is subtly dangerous. Because if we work with the definition of a better person being the goal, then somebody can say, as long as I'm not hurting someone, it's okay. Not recognizing that actually that can still lead to violating God's will and pleasure. And it not be okay. And we see that in a lot of our social morality that's, that's changed over the years in different ways. Um, views on marriage, sexuality, etc., etc., can fall into that category. As long as you're not hurting anyone. No, the, the, the goal of the gospel is to make us right with God. That's why Jesus came, to save sinners. <clears throat> Legalism. Just be a religious person. And so this year is the fi fifth, 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And Martin Luther, prior to the Reformation, was a legalist. Not Martin Luther King Jr., but his predecessor of the same name. Um, well, almost the same name. Um, he was a, an individual who was actually in the Roman Catholic Church, and he was a religious person going about fulfilling religious observances. And yet he was, he was still unsatisfied. He was still unfulfilled. He still had no peace. Being religious wasn't enough. He was a priest saying mass, reading from the scriptures, praying for people. He was a priest. But religion wasn't enough. And then he came to the understanding the just shall live by faith. And so it's not by religious observance that we're made right with God. And neither is that the goal. Because even as he came to the understanding that the just are made righteous with God by faith in Christ, he then began to condemn a lot of the religious practices that distorted and deviated from that truth. So there was an individual called Joseph Tetzel, and he was like the, the Roman Catholic salesman supreme. And he would come up with the slogans and the, the, the catchphrases to get the people on side. And, and so he had, a, um, he had this phrase, as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And that was his way, that was his way of getting money. I mean, there's always people that's getting money, right? When it comes to the gospel. That was... Uh, as a coin in the coffer, let your coins in the coffer ring as you release souls of loved ones from purgatory. What heinous heresy. 
and given arms, as they called it, or given to, to, the, to the church, was regarded as a religious activity through which you could experience right standing, and not even for yourself, but for your loved ones who have gone to this place called purgatory. Now, legalism can even extend to our own little legalisms. But none of it is either the basis or the goal of the gospel. Socialism, with a small s, intentionally. Not in the, in the political sense, but in the sense of the whole point of the gospel is to make a better society. And often people find themselves in that place and end up just making the world a better place to go to hell from. Because that, for them, is the whole goal of the gospel. Individualism. Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. It's just between me and him. I don't have to really talk about it. Or it's a, a gospel of self-help. The gospel is a bolt-on to help improve my lot in life. To help improve my situation and circumstances. Uh, am I going to listen to Oprah? Am I going to listen to, um, what's her name, Ivana? Yanda Van Sant? Or am I going to listen to Tim Robbins or whatever it is? Or am I going to listen, or am I going to listen to Jesus? Well, you know, I just take the whole lot. Anything I can get that's going to help improve my lot and help me to be a success. That's not the gospel. Mysticism. The reliance upon supernatural encounters. So there have been those in the, in the history, more recent history of the church who have said, unless you speak in tongues, you don't have the spirit of God. Now, think about this. If you don't have the spirit of God, then you're not saved. And that was the implication. I grew up in that era where that still was very common. And so there can be this reliance on supernatural encounters as being definitive to actually evidence your salvation. It can be subtle. Have you had a word from the Lord? I'll be like, uh, yeah, I have. I got the word. It's the Bible. Do I need more? I don't need more for salvation. And the next one kind of counterbalances because some people in their resistance to mysticism have just turned to rationalism and denied any expression or working of God's spirit, any evidence of God moving in the lives of his people. It's just merely down to, actually, if you can logically, rationally calculate it and formulate it according to scripture, then that's it. But we serve the living God. And just as much as we understand that the just shall live by faith, not by feelings. That doesn't mean that God doesn't work through those aspects that he's given us, being our emotions. But we're not reliant upon them. We submit that to the word of God. In all things, submit it to the word of God. 
hence emotionalism. Now, you probably have heard it said, you may have even caught it yourself. You know, we've had people come and been like, oh, yeah. God's really with them people, you know. Can't really feel his spirit in that place. And therefore, the definition of God's presence and favor and blessing is whether you feel it or not. Now, let's recognize that our feelings are seated in our emotions. That's the realm of our feelings. And so, and again, having been somebody who's grown up in the environment where actually it was regarded as powerful when everybody became emotional at certain times. And that then became the definition of God moving. And so if people were jumping, shaking, running, shouting with emotional outbursts and expressions, that's regarded as power. That's regarded as God's presence. That's regarded as evidence of the gospel at work. And again, this kind of relates to Taking something that's good and genuine. God's given us emotions. Emotions are a terrible master. Terrible master. You know what it's like when you get in your feelings and you just start saying stuff you ought not to say. And then afterwards you catch yourself and you regret it. Because you was in your feelings and you were led astray by your feelings. Terrible master. But they can be a helpful servant. And so, the expressions of emotions are not the basis of evidencing God's presence, his blessing, his favor. <clears throat> and it's definitely not the goal of the gospel. Materialism, also known as prosperity gospel, or on the flip side, poverty gospel. So, the prosperity gospel says, God has purposed you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And nothing less than that is God's intended will and purpose for you. Therefore, if you're not healthy, wealthy, and wise, then you're not blessed. You're not favored. Luke 16 says that when speaking of the Pharisees who had that kind of attitude, God is not like man. He doesn't see things as man sees them. He doesn't praise the things that men praise. We see someone with a big car, big house. Whoa, they're blessed. We hear it in the songs. I can't take it. I can't take it. I heard a song the other day and singer who I love and, you know, appreciate. And I'm sure it's been used greatly by God. I've appreciated many of her songs. And she has a secular artist on the track, Nicki Minaj. And the song is about blessings. And Nicki Minaj's verse is basically affirming the fact that she's been blessed by God because she has a jet ski, beach house, and da-da-da-da-da. Now, I'm not saying that everybody doesn't have something to give thanks for. But it's a problem when somebody, through their illicit activity, her music is not godly. Her music is not righteous. But that is the means by which she's gained her wealth. And she's going to say that that is evidence of God's blessing. I do this raucous, carousing music, 
and I get money from it, and that's the blessing of God. God is blessing my raucous, carousing lifestyle. No. No. And then to bring that on a Christian track as, and use it as that which is glorifying God, I'm saying, Nicky Minaj, give thanks to the Lord. Yes, he's given you life. He's given you strength. He's been very merciful to you. Give thanks. Give thanks. But don't bring that on my track. And the problem is I gave you now the opportunity to come and say that because I've defined the gospel as being blessed. And the song is about your blessing is going to come. Your blessing is going to come. Look at Nikki. She's blessed. You can be blessed like her. God's going to bless you like her. You listen. Listen. It's not good. And there's so much, so much that's being called gospel music. And it's not gospel music. It's not. It's not true to the gospel. It's just a style that's churchy. Seriously. And we, we need to know better. Because some people don't know better. So I'm not even going to hate on them. Some people are in an environment where they're not being taught God's word. They're just being taught success. And given motivational talks. No one's opening the Bible apart from to take verses out of context and to say, this is your promise and your destiny. Today is your day and everything is going to be well. And that's how it makes people feel because people want to do well in life. But this life isn't the goal of the gospel. We're gonna, it's going to be well. Everything is going to be all right in the end. And all we do is we, we buy into this sense of covetous, now, 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 gimme, 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 gimme. No sense of patient waiting on that which is good to come. No sense of delayed gratification. I have to have it now. I heard one preacher back in the day say, I don't need gold streets in heaven. I don't need it. Then I need it now. Heresy. That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is not materialism. The book of Acts says, listen, <clears throat> the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. But it is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. How much money can you pay to be right with God? How much money can you pay to be right with God? How much money can you pay to have true joy in your life? Listen, look at all the, all the celebrities out there losing their minds. Literally. I see one celebrity and my heart went out to her on the stage. And she had a, a, it was like a mental breakdown right on the stage as she's performing. And I know they're under all sorts of pressures and so on. But you're like, hold on a second. How do you get to that place with all the money that you have? With all of the, 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 the things, that the power that you have to change, to orchestrate your life in a way that you can just be happy. But still, it's not enough. Money can't buy you joy. Money can't buy you peace. Can't even buy you health. So what, is that the goal of our lives? That's what God saved us so that we'd be rich. That would be shallow. I'd be disappointed. And what we do is we, we sacredize covetousness and greed. And we sanctify it with the prosperity gospel. 
God's promised to take care of his people. God has promised to take care of his people. He's going to take care of his own. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or receive begging bread. Amen, brother. Come on. You think if the council can give their workers subsidies, subsidized lunches, the Transport for London can give their people free passes and give them free travel, you think that God's not going to take care of his people? You think that man is greater than God? We are not to stress ourselves over it. We shouldn't be pursuing those things. Righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. That is what the kingdom of God is. And the flip side isn't true. We don't have to be poor, therefore, to evidence holiness and righteousness. Walk around with no shoes, holy clothes that don't change for a month. That's not holiness and righteousness. The Apostle Paul said, you know, in all things I've learned to be content. If I abound, praise God. If I'm lacking, praise God. I learned to content in wherever I'm at. Because why? I have Jesus. And I know that no matter what this life throws at me, no matter what turns it takes, actually, it's going to be all right. It's going to be fine. Because we have the hope of heaven. Remember our four creation, rebellion, redemption, new creation. We've got the hope of the new creation. Hope is an anchor for the soul. Professionalism. And I use that word intentionally. Because sometimes people think that professionalism is the standard at which Christianity ought to be judged and outworked and lived at. We're called to a higher calling than professionalism. People say, well, if you were at work and you were paid to do this, you would do this to a professional standard and you'd have a professional attitude, which is true. But we're more than professionals. We are servants of God. We're not even volunteers. Volunteer community, working in the community and doing this great work and da 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 da, da. We're more than volunteers. We're servants of God. Cultural sacredism, regarding aspects of culture as sacred. So, you know what it's like. You can grow up in a cultural church, and then you get to a point where you kind of begin to sit down and say, why do we do things like this? That's how we do it. It's of God. It's of God. And you're like, hold on a second, but when I look at the Bible, so, I mean, you know my story. I grew up in church. You couldn't wear a hat. You couldn't, as a man, you had to wear a hat as a woman. Women couldn't wear trousers. You couldn't go cinema. Like, if you, it was tiring. <laughs> and when you begin to sit down and say, hold on a second, when I look at the Bible, let me just see what the Bible says. And I begin to understand that, actually, this isn't really reflected in the scriptures. So how are you holding me so ardently to this standard that is not even in the Bible and you don't even keep yourself? Because I would see sister so-and-so in the work week wearing her trousers. <laughs> now, I was, I, was, I was not easy. So I would ask the questions that people don't want to ask. So hold on a second. So on a Sunday, you have to wear a frock. Because you know it couldn't even just be any dress. It had to be a... Yeah? On a Sunday, you have to wear frock. But during the week, you can stride in your trousers. Feminine trousers. They're not masculine. But you can, 
So how does that work? Is God not the same God Sunday as he is the rest of the week? So if you can't wear it on a Sunday, how is it permissible during the week? See, the reality is that if we really took that kind of, those cultural things to their extreme, we'd end up like the Amish, who just segregate themselves from everyone. Don't have no electricity, no motorized transportation. They're, they're just living basic. And even then they have a culture. <laughs> even then they have a way of life that's not prescribed by scripture. It's just that which they deem to be godly. I used to say, you know, I can really tell the era in which somebody got saved, how long someone's been a Christian by the way they dress. Because back in those days, somebody became a tr- Christian and their, their, their fashion sense was frozen in time. They would never, like, I'm actually serious. You think about it. Some of you are old school. You would know what I'm saying. Their fashion sense was frozen in time. As if that was the godly era. When I met the Lord, this is what was. And so it doesn't matter. I remember in church, right? Oh, time, man. Time is killing me out here. Listen, I remember in church when guys started wearing brooches on their shirts. Start following some fashion or another. No, it's a brooch on a shirt. Like, <clears throat> young man, are you saved? Are you backslide? Have you backslidden, young man? What is this? Listen, over a brooch on a shirt. Now, you know, granted they might have considered it was a bit fruity or whatever. However, like they, but it wasn't really a, a, you know, a backbench issue. Membership meeting. It wasn't that kind of issue. But that's how, you know, I put a parting in my hair. I had short black and sides and a flat top and I put a parting in my hair. And I was asked if I was still a Christian. <laughs> Cultural sacredism. Oh, you can't use guitars. Just the organ. As if the strings on the organ or the pipes on the organ and the strings on the piano was more holy than the strings on the guitar. Cultural sacredism. They make aspects of culture sacred. We still have it today. In many places, I couldn't go and preach in the pulpit looking like this without a suit on and a tie. Why? We're in the Bible. We're in the Bible. Please. We're in the Bible. We're in the Bible. And I'm open. I've had this conversation for generations now. I'm open. When we started doing rap, oh my days, Pastor Rob will tell you. It was at a time when nobody was using rap music as a, as a ministry tool or vehicle. And I remember there was one brother. We used to go to this church uptown and there was a brother who, you know, we, we appreciate it. He wrote, I think he wrote a letter. And then after he wrote the letter, he gave it and we sat down and we talked about it. And... He was convinced that this was of the devil. This was not of God. And, you know, it's not even like we were proud and just like, well, that's whatever you want to say. But we think that God has just given us the permission and we don't see it. And we're just like, okay, let's talk about this. He says a fool despises correction. And so let's talk about this. And at the end of the day, there was nothing in the scripture to say that it wasn't permissible. So I don't have to take on your cultural baggage. 
I'm going to talk a little bit more about this next week, so I feel like I'm going to move on in this. Because um, when you, you know, Jenny talked about the imperialist history of Christianity, I've never understood. People go to countries, 100 degree weather, the people become Christians and they put them in a shirt and tie, sweating their eyeballs out in order to be deemed as a proper Christian. That's not righteous. That's not godly. That is not the goal of the gospel. And so fundamentally we see underlying these two things. Two things. Intention. What is a man-centered gospel versus a Christ-centered gospel? Man-centered or Christ-centered? And when you think about where, does, where is the weight placed? Where is the burden placed? Is it placed upon man or is it placed upon Jesus? Because that can help us to begin as a principle to discern what it is that people are really putting out there that's distasteful. The goal of the gospel isn't to make us happy, make us rich, simply to make the world a better place. You hear me refer to this often. Romans 11:36. For from him and through him and to him, the purpose, the trajectory, the goal is Jesus. In all things, all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. It's for the glory of Christ. One of my um, favorite rappers has got a new album coming out soon. And um, his name's KB. And he, um, like over the years, has established and um, kind of just basically led a team called HGA. And I was just looking at his new album and so on last night and thinking, oh, I'm looking forward to this album. And I just forgot for a minute what HGA stood for. And I remember looking it up and just thinking, KB forgot. His glory alone. Alone. His glory alone. That's what it's all about. His glory alone. Um, I'm going to invite the team to come up. The gospel is for the glory of Christ because Christ is the glory of the gospel. It's not about us. It's about him and his glory. And it's important that as we handle and share and interact with and submit ourselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we remember it's for his glory alone. And that will help us. That will help us have a sense of clarity and distinction in our appreciation and understanding of the gospel. And so may we be sensitive to not reduce the gospel to any one aspect, even wonderful aspect 
of its truth, but that we see the big picture being for the glory of Christ alone. Salvation belongs to the Lord. From him, through him, and to him are all things, all things for his glory forever. I'm going to invite you to stand with us as we...